and welcome. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. Our desire at Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois, is to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny perfectly orchestrated for those who are willing to be adventurous enough to receive His favor and blessing into their life. Our prayer is that you will allow the presence of the comforting Spirit of God to radically display the Father's love for you. You are a part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Now over to our guest minister for today. So this morning we are, Doc Ryan and I are going to, I, I'm, I'm pausing because we, Bob stands up and he says, I don't want to sound like a broken record. And so I'm standing here thinking, I don't want to sound like a broken record. <laughs> but Bob got away with it, so I can get away with it. But it, it is not at all surprising or shocking to me anymore. It used to be a little bit, but it's not anymore that the things that God had laid on my heart that we were going to be talking about that, that I anticipated to minister, it ended up being that he does this increased thing, this duplication thing, by this specific topic is something that, that Doc Ryan, the Benchimer family, does very, very well as a family. They also have a micro church as well. That I'm, I'm, as I was pressing into this, I'm like, Lord, I really want to talk about this. I want, to, I want to bring this up with our culture. And I got affirmation and confirmation from the Lord. And then Doc Ryan's like, hey, I'm coming down. I'm like, yeah, of course you are. Because you're the perfect guy to help me talk about this stuff because these fruits are absolutely in your life. And it's one of the things that, that irks me. It's fingernails on a chalkboard for me is how easy it is in today's society to just show up on YouTube and be able to pop off a couple of Greek words and people think all of a sudden you're like this ministry kingdom expert. And nobody has any right to verify any fruit in your life. How long have you been living this way? Does your wife agree? Because she could be thinking, there he is in there doing that ministry stuff. And I hate him. And you'd never know that on YouTube. We, we've lost the, I think, one of the important parts of the kingdom, which is being so intimate and doing life together so regularly that we're very aware and extremely sensitive to any hypocrisy. Mm. You just say that word in church and people are like, Ugh. and I know that uniquely we are we are developing a culture that I am so honored to be a part of because there are so many people in this room that I think are some of the most genuine, sincere, authentic people that I've ever met in my whole life. And that's not a me thing, that's a Jesus thing. And I'm sharing the stage with one of those people. And so please understand as we as we delve into these topics this morning, this isn't some, some sermon that, 
Doc Ryan and I were emailing back and forth like, hey, you say this, and then I'll say this, and everybody will be like, woohoo, we're awesome. We, this is something that the Lord has worked on our lives, our hearts, our fruit. Our trees have these, these fruit on them. Yes, can, our, can we have more fruit and better fruit? Of course, everybody in every area, you can have more fruit and better fruit. But we're not saying these things from, from the position of we ain't there and we're trying to get there. We're saying this from we've adopted these principles in our lives and our hearts. They're working for us. These are time-tested, culture-tested, kingdom culture-tested. Please understand that this isn't something we're teaching. This is something that's legitimately a part of the kingdom that all of us need to adopt in our lives and our hearts. So the uh, Mitchell has re, renamed it. I had my notes say being present and hospitality, and I think he called it being president, being present and hospitable, because he's way better at the English language than I am. I know all of you are shocked by that, but I'm learning Greek, so I'll just chalk it up to the fact that. I'm struggling with it. You have to trade off. Like if, you're, if you learn one language, you got to get worse at the other one so that you can get better. And so I'm going to open this with our, this will kind of be like our, our header verse, our principle. This, what the Spirit of God has to say about this particular topic and then we'll, we'll dive off into some really pertinent areas and the action that's associated with it. In Philippians chapter 1, and this is going to be in the New Living Translation. In verse 27, it says, above all, you must, anybody know what must means in the New Living Translation, in the Bible? Uh, these, these, these words have meaning, so please consider, I think sometimes when folks read the Bible, it's like they're reading a Hallmark card. Like, yeah, I agree with some of this. I think my wife will like it. These are, these are words from the entity that some of us call Lord. Maybe you're not quite there yet. I pray you get there. It's way better to have Jesus as Lord than just as Savior. And so your Lord says, you must live as citizens of heaven. We hear statements like that and we think, well, if I'd get a little heaven down here, Lord, it'd be way easier for me. That's backwards. The right way is you live the way that, you in, that God tells you to live and then you will bear the fruits of that life. You don't get it backwards. Amen. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. That is a heavy sentence, a very heavy sentence. I pray that it has weight and value in your heart and your life as well. Please go meditate on that after today's message. Then, notice this comes after, then... Whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together, community, with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith 
which is the good news. We as a community, the word community is a compound word of common unity. What are we in unity about? I'll almost guarantee you ask about 10 folks in this room, you probably get 10, 10 different answers. That's not unity. That means you're in unity with yourself. And, and a lot of people think this, well, I'm in unity. I don't feel Jesus rebuking me right now, so I must be all good. It's way bigger than that. What are we as a community, what do we believe in God for? Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. Fear not. Well, now, why would that have to be attached to that statement? <laughs> you think about it. Because this world is going to want to intimidate you out of the mission and the vision that God has for you as part of the community, the family of God that he's placed you in. That world is going to tell you in a fearful way, don't you dare make this the unity of your life and your heart. You have got way more important things to do. You've got a paycheck to hunt. You've got a pension to build. You've got your own family. Yeah, I know I have my church family, but we use family like in air quotes. I have my air quote church family. Then I got my real family. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that are a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God Himself. You know that's a eschatological statement. That that is that's an end time statement. For those of you that are really like, what's going on with the end times? Well, here's a start. Look at this, how God never gets away from the core values of his kingdom, even when it gets into end times. A lot of people think when you go into end times conversations, like God completely stops everything from before and says, all right, now we're doing end times. All of this stuff is going to be completely weird, big bugs stinging people, uh, you know, antichrist, beasts, seven-headed dragons, and uh, and then there's regular Christianity over here with all this other stuff. No, God doesn't change gears as he nears the end. He, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what God is shooting for here is unity, not uniformity. We, we all don't have the same haircut. We all don't dress the same. Praise God. A a amen? Anybody? That's, that's not what it's about. We don't talk the same. We don't laugh the same. We don't even have uh, the same lifestyles. But we should all have a lifestyle of the kingdom. And then the expression of how that looks is going to be unique as this room is unique. God loves diversity. But if your diversity creates division then you're going to look like the world. So this is interesting that he says that in the terms of division because this verse 
This isn't very common. I would say Dr. Steve and I see all things biblical. I call that word theology. About 98% the same. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have a difference on. Yet this verse we see slightly differently. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But 27 says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Now, this is where we get a little bit different on this, although it's very, very similar. We actually sat in front of a camera for three hours one time and discussed how we see this verse and a few other ones slightly different. But here's where we land solidly. God's kingdom is a kingdom. The first thing it says, you must live as citizens of heaven. So there's a world out there that has a whole bunch of kingdoms in it. And then there's King Jesus in his kingdom. And so first and foremost, and I'll say I can go along with a lot of the American flags. In fact, when I walked in here, I, I was wearing one. And I can go along with that as long as we don't forget that that's supposed to be one nation under, under God. Under God. And I'm not into hierarchy until it comes to God and only God. <laughs> right. There's a hierarchy there. There's God and there's everybody and everything else. And so we read this and there's, there's one kingdom. And, there's, and, and in some ways that means that other kingdoms are going to be rival nations to that kingdom. And I think that's what we're experiencing in this world is that there are, there are, there are people, there are nations, there are kingdoms that are trying to demand our allegiance or our governance or our citizenship. All these things, and we got to remember first and foremost that that's where we're at. Now, now, there's two different ways. I would say both him and I sort of personify lives that look all in for that kingdom. I mean, I, I, both of us, if you, if you asked us to do one or two things, the answer would be based on what we just said, under God, that everything points to a King Jesus way of thinking. So when I look at our, our I'll say, country today, I see the potential to be great under God. Right. But I also sometimes say, we're at this place where, like, I'm not sure about it anymore. <laughs> like, am I ready to check out and just, you know, do this? But I'll tell you one thing, I'm a whole lot happier that I don't live in a place like communist China where I'm being persecuted every day. But on the other hand, in a kingdom mindset, are they actually better off than we are? This is, uh, this is that one of those tension places that you've heard me struggle with a lot. This is my nation. I believe it's the greatest nation on the earth. It's probably the greatest nation ever. And it breaks my heart every day when I see what's going on. Yeah. Every day. It used to be you know, once a week, once a month. And now it's every day. Because yeah. there is there's some ignoramus that wants to try to exalt the things of Satan more and more and more blatantly. The, we just went through a month. I'm not, no, I can't. 
Hallelujah. Thank God the month's over. Everything Satan touches, he ruins. <clears throat> I, this, and this is where, what Doc Ryan is talking about, where we spent three hours on a video one time. Like, there's a, there's a tension in both of us that we know what God wants it to look like. And we know what it actually is. And the distance between those two sometimes looks irreconcilable. But what God wants his kingdom to look like can easily be done in this room and in this family. And to use that out there as an excuse as to why not is just lame. It's just lame. And I love the way this says, conduct yourself. So first it says, above all, now, they, they had the same thing going on that we have today. Maybe, probably even a little bit worse. So Philippi, what this is being uh, written to, was a colony of Rome, and it was on a major, I'd say the major highway of Rome. And when you came to the door, you basically had to pledge your allegiance before you were accepted in there that you are allegiant to Rome. So what is he saying to Philippi, Philippi? When you get to the gate, remember whose you are. And so that's what this is saying. And, and sometimes, like some people read this and go, are you sure? Well, it's got the citizen's language in there. Now, this is really interesting. See this word conducting? Conducting in Greek is, this is a great word. You ready for this one? I got I to gotta read it careful. Polit. You om ahe, conducting yourselves is actually what that means. Did you catch the first part of that? Polit, guess where we get our word politics from? Right there. So essentially what this is talking about in this word is politics. When you are in the politics of your nation, remember whose you are and whose you represent. And that's good right there. So Jesus was the authentic citizen of the real kingdom. He's the one that showed us what it looks like to be a son in the kingdom of his father. So what this is supposed to look like was personified in the life of Jesus Christ. I want to give you an example of a day in the life of citizen Jesus. In his jacked up world, he was in the Roman, you, you think America's bad, yeah. Rome, Rome was one up on us. This is, this is where Philippians kind of says, if you're doing this well, you might be disrupting, displacing, dispatching all of these things that I described earlier as idolatry. So get ready. In Mark 5 and, and 25, I don't care what version you got. I'm going to read it in the New King James. It says, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. Please note 12 years. And had suffered many things from many physicians. Anybody have, ever have doctors cause more problems than they solve in their life? You're not the only one. She had spent all that she had. Anybody ever think doctors are too expensive? You're not the only one. And was no better, but rather grew worse. 
what this is laying out is that she was desperate. So it's, and, and I'm not going to preach on healing, but one of the things that I know that tends to get people out of sick and into whole is when they just are sick and tired of being sick and tired. When you're just tired of taking it, you fight back. It's, it's amazing to me how far down sometimes people get before they're willing to fight back. And some people never fight back. They become a pacifist in the spirit, which is not what God wants. You know, passivity in your natural life, turning the other cheek. I'm, I'm, up, th I'm up thumb with that if, somebody, if God's called you to that. But in the spirit, there's no such thing. You either fight for the kingdom or those that are fighting against the kingdom will prevail. <clears throat> when she had heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing, please note, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, I want to pause here for a second. Jesus was busy with life. He was a minister. He was doing what he was called to do, where he was called to do it, with whom he was called to do it. He was on his divine destiny triangle working it. And he was so focused on the kingdom. He was so present in the moment that he was aware that someone in a crowd surrounding him touched him in faith. Most of the time the enemy is bringing crowds into your life so that you don't notice what God is doing. Your cell phone is not your friend when it comes to noticing what God wants to do in your life. All of the distractions, your calendar, some of the people in your life, all the noises, the unruly children, these are not things from God to help you develop your acuity for the kingdom. Jesus was very present in this moment. And I know you don't want to talk about healing, but how can you read this and not talk about healing? <laughs> so part of the reason I wear these is this is a prayer shawl, a prayer scarf. In fact, stand up. I like your American one. Show it off for a second. She's got a prayer scarf. Show them the bottom of it. I want to, I want to point out the bottom. The tassels. See the tassels? So in, in Hebrew, thank you, uh, that's a talit or a, or a prayer shawl. And, and those little tassels are zitzi. And this is Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, remember they are, they've sold their women and children out to slavery over, over being handed over to what they had coming. And now this is a time where God's saying, now you're about to be redeemed. Get ready because I'm going to welcome you back to my sacred house. And it says, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, I'm not a farmer, but I think there's a bunch here leaping like calves from a stall is a pretty cool thing. And so 
this is what we pray for. And I said, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, that's beautiful because it signifies that you're praying for the healing of your nation. That's what it says. And this is, this is likely what they were also praying for from the healing of yeah, the nation. But sometimes before you can pray for yourself for the healing of the, your nation, what you have to do, you have to get yourself healed first. Healed That's people, healed people. Amen. Can't give away what you ain't got. And this is a beautiful picture. And I don't know if you notice this, but this is, this is circular too. This stage is set up a little bit that it's circular. But Jesus was in the middle and everybody was surrounding him so that they could, they could hear. We're blessed to have these amazing sound systems today. But like you wanted to be close to Jesus. Yep. And you, and you believed, you had faith that if you touched him, you could be healed. And then you could bring that same purpose and power to those around you. So he said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? You, you do know his disciples basically like rebuked him. Like, hello, right. you're in a crowd? They were not present. Jesus was present in this moment. His disciples were not. They were busy about the stuff and the things. They were doing disciple stuff. They were, they were making sure that the crowds were managed. They probably made sure that the limo was washed and clean. They, they, had, to, they had to do all of the peripheral things that all of us seem to be very, very focused on. This is the Mary Martha story. If you remember the Mary Martha story, you got Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, focused singularly on the bread of life. And then you got Martha busy about all the stuff and things. Martha gets rebuked. Mary gets blessed. The disciples are rebuking Jesus. Don't you know that ain't going to go well? He looked around to see her who had done this thing, verse 32, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Told him the whole truth. That we see those words, we don't really think about this. This was a story. She didn't give him a 12-second flyby, well, I'm sorry, she had to explain herself. She was a woman with the issue of blood, violating the Levitical law, causing all kinds of problems. She was disrupting the disciples' awesome show that they had going on, interrupting a rabbi in the middle of what he was doing, which was going to J. Iris' house, the leader of the synagogue, to go heal his daughter. So she had a lot of explaining to do. So she, this story wasn't like, hey, real quick, I was sick and I touched you, so have a great time on the way to Jack. He sat down. I want you to get this. Jesus, in the middle of a crowd, basically sat down, went eyeball to eyeball, face to face with this woman to find out what happened, to testify. He tuned out the whole world and focused on her. This is how Jesus did life. Jesus did life one-on-one. -on -one. He did life focused. Yes, he was surrounded by crowds. Yes, there was thousands. Yes, I get all that. But I'm telling you that if you were in front of Jesus, 
His eyes were like fire on you. We, beloved, should be this way. We should be this way. You know how many times I'm standing with someone talking and they completely, completely go another direction with their focus. Their phone goes off, somebody walks behind me, there's a noise. It's amazing what can distract people in today's climate. We're talking about some of the deep things of the kingdom and then there's a ding from somebody else's cell phone a hundred miles away, and they're all, oh, phone went off. We should be way better at practicing being present and making the person in front of you the most important thing that you have going on. I don't know if that means we got to make a universal rule of no more noises from cell phones, no more you know, wayward eyes, no more focusing on peripheral vision. I don't know. But Jesus did this. He was so capable of tuning in directly to the person in front of him. I'll guarantee you that this gal felt the value and the affection of Jesus in this moment. Not just because of the healing, but because he was present with her in this moment. And we should be this way as well. It's interesting to you that the context of this story, if you back up and go to the chapter before this, it's that weird pig story. And I, if you want to know more about that, I have an article on Expedition 44 that you can read about the pig story. I think it's a equivalent to 14 pages. It gets really into the weird pig story. But the idea, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the finish. All you need to know is it's very, it, it connects the earthly world to the spiritual world. It, it shows spiritual warfare is going on in everything. And so that's, when you get to here, it's a story of spiritual warfare. And, and it's really interesting that these talits that I was talking about, you put them over your head and it kind of, you put them over to go to your sanctuary basically and drowned out everything. It becomes your quiet place where you can't see the world or anything else, and it looks like you're flying. In fact, I think I've even shown you guys that before in here about a year or two ago. And it looks like you're flying, and that's the wings part in Malachi 4, that, that there will be healing in the wings. And so when Jesus does this, this is Malachi 4 being, being fulfilled, and I think some people in that crowd all of a sudden get that. And that's why Jesus goes, who touched me knows his disciples are clueless, which is interesting. Those walking with Jesus are clueless, but everybody else gets it in that room. And then I think all of a sudden, people make the connection of this spiritual thing going on. A lot of us sort of sit here and we pray for healing and we pray that our nation is transformed and we pray that those around us, yet we're not really willing to really go after it that way. We're not really willing to be devoted in that kind of, in that kind of uh, devotion of prayer towards it. And I say this quite a bit, but I actually think Jesus was praying in this moment. I think he was in a huge spiritual place. So, so think about this. He's surrounded by a crowd, and in the way that this connects to Malachi, guess what he was doing surrounded in the crowd? 
He was praying and people are getting healed. And sometimes we think that there's some magic words associated with this or the faith of the healer or something like that. And we forget that the majority of the power of healing comes through what? Prayer. It's like we, we say this a lot that, that we need to just get on our knees and pray for our nation, but I don't think that a lot of us fervently have really gone through that yet. Hey, uh, Doc Ryan used the word devotion. It's a, it's a dead term in our society today that needs to be resurrected. We should be wholly devoted. It's biblical. We should be wholly devoted to one another and obviously to the Father, the Scriptures. But devotion, devoted, that's undivided. And Mark, Mark uses the term connected with devotion, the idea of devotion, immediately to be immediately devoted. And so if something happens that, that we need to bring prayer towards, there's immediacy. In fact, Mark, used, Mark connects those two things 40 times in his short little gospel of being immediately devoted to it. Uh, how many of us think that way? Now, some of us do. When something happens, when you find out, immediately devoted to it. <clears throat> so... Uh... So the woman with the issue of blood 12 years tells Jesus the whole story and then he, the whole testimony, this is why testifying even unto the Lord has, yeah. has incredible value and power. And then he responds to her when he should have been rebuking the disciples, he basically pushed them off to the side and he focused on her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Was it, so was it the talit? Was it the hem of Jesus' garment that healed her? Or was it her faith that healed her? Yes. Yes. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, did you pick up on that? He's in the middle of addressing the woman and while he's still speaking, some came to the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, your daughter is dead, why, tr why trouble the teacher any further? So something really important was going, off to the, going on in the peripheral, but Jesus was focused to this woman. You know, this thing that he said to this woman was incredibly important for her life and her future. He didn't see someone else walk up, you know, these these highfalutin people that walked up to the ruler of the synagogue. You know, these weren't just Joe Average dudes that walked up to the ruler of the synagogue. These were important people, and in this society, normally importance was worn on your clothes. And so he, he's probably aware that important people were walking up to the very important guy that he was with, Jairus, but he stayed very focused on her and gave her the eternal blessing that he, as the son of the citizen of heaven, should do. Did you, did you catch earlier when I said, like, you're going to disrupt some things when you walk in the kingdom? This is a picture of that. Because what's going on is you have this high-ranking synagogue person, and I'm thinking the disciples are going, Jesus, that guy, that guy, that guy. And who does he turn to and give his complete attention to? 
the total outcast that, that wasn't even really allowed to be there. The bloody woman. Yeah. What, the way Jesus values people is way different than the way we value people. So after these guys, he's probably peripherally aware that this happens. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believed. He finished his declaration to the woman with the issue of blood, and he turned directly. Notice what he skipped. The crowd, the messengers, all the, I wonder if there was gasps. Oh no, Jesus took too much time with the bloody woman. And now this little girl is dead. There was probably a ton that was going on here, and Jesus was like, hey, J. Iris, right here, buddy, right here. Do not get in fear. We're going to handle this. Jesus was laser with his focus. He was so present in this moment, moment, he knew how to avoid all of the pitfalls, all of the traps of all of the busy that was around him and focus exactly where he needed to go. The woman with the issue of blood got it, healed, go on into eternal blessing. Zoop, right over here. You, Jay Iris, right here, buddy. Don't lose this. We're going to accomplish what we need to do. Do not be afraid, only believe. Jesus was so full of it. He was so full of it that he just releases it here. It actually gets stolen from him by the woman with the issue of blood. And then he addresses her and gives her an additional blessing. And then he's got so much of it that he just pivots and wham, right here, J. Iris. And then you know the story that they go into the house. And I just want to focus here on how he did this. He said, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him. He permitted no one to follow. What did he do? He canceled the noise. Now, hold on. I want to I just bring this out real quick. So verse 34, it says, Daughter, because of your faith, sometimes it kind of helps to read things in Greek. Because of your faith, this is pistis. Now, when you get to 36, and he looks at the guy square, he said, Do not be afraid any longer. He uses the word pisto which is the negative form of faith. You have faith, you don't have faith. You see the two right next to each other, one sentence in the eye, turn to the other person in the eye. That's the, the earlier in the sermon, earlier in this day, you guys heard, you guys heard this slightly different, extreme versions of things. I call those contronyms. This is one of those extreme versions. You have it, you should, you high-ranking official should be more like the outcast. <laughs> the outcast. And he came, uh, he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So he purposefully cancels the noise. Do, do you do this? Have you done this? Do you know how to do this? Do you cancel the noise? Or does the noise tell you where to go and where to put your focus? This, our world is way more noisy than their world was. And one of the things that made Jesus such a successful citizen of the heavens was because he was able to cancel the noise. 
He only took those folks with him that was in faith. Do you have this? Do you have this community that surrounds you? Do you got your four, your three or four that you know that you know that you know? Or is this something that we don't have? We're going to get into that in a moment. And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, chaos. Jesus is always shredding chaos. You got chaos in your life, Jesus wants to solve it. And if you do have chaos in your life, don't you dare blame Jesus that you got it. He didn't bring any chaos in your life. Order and peace and balance, that's what Jesus brings. Then he came into the house of the ruler of the synagogue and he saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. You know what you call that? Motions. <laughs> you know what? One of, the, one of the most chaotic things that will ever happen in your life? Your feelings. Amen. Love that. No, my feelings are on my side. Oh, you poor fool. When he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child's not dead, but sleeping. Don't you know that irritated him? Stupid preacher, we know what we're talking about. Follow the science. She's dead. Jesus might have a little different science than you do. And they ridiculed him. Jesus. <laughs> right. I think that's the second time they brought that up. <laughs> but when he had put them all outside, what did he do? He canceled it again. So he could do what? Focus. So he could be present in that moment. You are going to have to learn to make this a virtue in your life on how to be present if you're going to reflect the image of Christ in your life. And he took the father and the mother of the child and those that were with him and entered in and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and he said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years. We had 12 years issue of blood. We had a 12-year-old girl. He took the old and made it whole. He took the young and dead and made her whole. This, this is, like Doc Ryan just said, this is very circular. This is the Lord showing us the infinite ways that he can get into your situations. This is also interesting, too, as a, as a person that points out things in the scripture that's interesting. There is so much interesting stuff going on here. I mean, I could, we, could, yeah. we oh, could do like we're flying a 20-part yeah. video on this and get into it. But people always ask what language Jesus spoke and taught in and things like that. And the answer is usually he spoke to his audience. And this yep. is a very mixed audience, and this is a very rare version that you actually see this laid out like this because when he speaks, do you remember when I said the pistis faith thing? When he speaks to the, to the high-ranking official, guess what language intelligent, high-ranking people would have been using in this time? Because Rome said, if you're learned, yep. this is what you do. It's Greek. That's why we have them all written in that, because they wanted to appeal to the people that would continue reading. So when he turns and does that, if I would argue in this translation, they should have put those two pistis pisto word, because that's probably exactly what Jesus said to the high-ranking official. Now you get to this, and this is in Aramaic. 
Why Aramaic? And your Bible shows you that it's Aramaic. It doesn't translate it. Even though this whole conversation was likely in Aramaic, they kept this in Aramaic because he's talking to the daughter here, and there's this contrast. High-ranking official, no belief going on there. You should believe like her. And then what does he do? Turn to his daughter and believes that she herself would have had that kind of faith. Right. And talked to her. He was present with her. Yeah. Think about this. That's only, Jesus only does this twice in the Bible. There's when he calls his father Abba, and then he quotes Psalm 22. So there's only three times in the Bible that you get this and as somebody that's into language, when I see this, I say, this is significant. And when you, tra when you track that, do you see what this is saying? Is that person is too enthroned into their citizenship kingdom of Rome. I'm going to speak in your language, but there's still hope for your daughter. She has the belief of my kingdom. And the, the king of heaven and earth, focused on a 12-year-old, unlearned, dead girl. And that focus of Jesus in that moment changed everything. Jesus was so present and so intimate and had such value for that girl and where she was at that he pressed through all the noise. He went through... The ridicule, he went through multiple crowds, he went through the unbelief, he went through all that stuff and drilled down to a little girl. And we know this is one of the, one of the rare moments in all of scripture where the dead was raised. This is, this is the example that we are supposed to follow in our lives. He was in two different crowds and yet he was so in charge of his soul. He had such control of his soul and his focus that he put, his, he put being present where he needed to put in those moments and these two radical and, and renowned miracles took place back to back. Just another day in the life of Jesus. This is just random day in the life of Jesus. Now Dr. Castle's teasing you with the number 12, and I'm not sure he's going to give you the rest of the story, so I will. <laughs> the number 12 has a lot of significance in the Bible. So when you look at the number 12, you might remember uh, Jacob, Israel, 12 sons, how many tribes are there, things like that. The idea behind the number 12 is that it's a, it's a number of authority or power that comes only from God. And so you might have a government system in the 12 tribes, but it's not you. Anything that you have comes from God upstairs. And so when you get to Revelations, there's the number 12 talking about all the authorities, and it takes place 22 times, which is the number of perfection in the Bible, completeness being totally complete, and the idea there is that all kingdoms of the world at one day will be reconciled to bow before the one that brings the authority.
And so 12 and 12 in this story, you kind of put them together and what is it pointing to? It doesn't matter what, what governor you are or where you come from, eventually the same power that raised your daughter is the power that all things will be reconciled to. Another 12. Romans 12. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Both of those adverbs are very intense. And I'm not going to I'm not going to do any exegesis on them, but they're both very intense on purpose. Detest. This is a unique Bible word. And cling. This is a unique Bible, a unique word in the Bible. So please, please let your thinking drill down on here. God's not like saying, hey, you should love, be good people, da-da-da-da, blah-blah-blah. Like this is what your this is what authentic, sincere, genuine, non-hypocritical love looks like. Detesting. Like this is almost like nauseous, like disgusting. Detest what is evil and cling. This is like a death grip. Cling to what is good. And some people can do one of these, like, I really love good. God is so good. Everything's good. Yay. And then you got the other Bible thumper Christians that irritate everybody. I was with some of these people last Monday. That they're, and I'm not going to go there. That they, they think that just being angry about everything evil is a good way to influence society. No, you're the reason that society gets away with what they do because you're just angry, adding to their angry, and everybody's angry about everything. If you do not have the balance on these two things, you will not have sincere love. You have to have as much hatred for evil as you do a, a grip on the goodness of God. Anything out of balance here is going to make your car go in a ditch. And your love is, un, is insincere. Verse 9, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And, and I am going to let Doc Ryan break this down a little bit. Devoted was this word that, we, that he used earlier, and we've come back around to this, and then brotherly love. So the, these, are, these are commands to us from the head of the church. How is it supposed to look? And this is specifically from Paul writing to the Gentile church, so you don't even get to say, well, that was to the Jews, and I'm not a Jew. No, this is you, Gentile church. We, we perfectly qualify for anything being said in the Roman church to us. Because it would be, it'd be the exact same. Paul could write this letter to beloved church in 2023. So uh, devoted and then specifically brotherly love. Now we always, we tend to look at love as in the agape fashion. And, and that's totally fine. And we can do thousands of hours on messages of agape love. But I think it's unique that brotherly love is used here because brotherly love is literally the affectionate kind of love. 
Agape is, is, doesn't necessarily have affection to it. It's based on value. It's based on, on character and integrity of who you are, and you're giving it away. Whereas brotherly love is literally affectionate. There's people that you love, and then there's people that you love and you love. Amen, anybody? There's people that you have a hard time loving. Maybe me right now. That's okay. But then there's people that, like, are easy to love. This is like mom. You know, like, if you don't love mom, like, you're just going to hell. <laughs> so devoted. You want to break that down for us, Doc? So in their culture, they had what were called house codes. And house codes meant the kind of hospitality that you should show towards people. And so you might get this, that if you're out in public, how many times has this happened? Somebody looks really good in public or at church on Sunday mornings or on the outside. But boy, if you ask their family who they really were, you might get a totally different version of that, right? And so house codes were this idea in ancient times that we all should be the person that we want to be in the hardest place where it is to be, which starts with your family. And so that's the idea of phylos or brotherly love is that even though this, this is kind of a contronym again, I've got four boys, do you think my four boys show absolute wonderful love to each other all the time in the family? Of course they do. They're Benchamers, right? No. No, sometimes it looks really, really bad between them. And so that was the idea of Every time this was a, an idiom in, in Hebrew, and it carried over to Philos Greek as well, of that it was a house code of reminding what it was supposed to be like. Now, I said it started in Hebrew because the house codes point to a father. Who do they point to? Abraham. <clears throat> and uh, the, when you, when you, this, both the devoted word and the brotherly love word in the Greek have the, the philo part of it. The brotherly love, we all know the city of brotherly love, right? Philadelphia, that's where that word comes from. It's, it's, a, it's brotherly love, and they were the city of that. So it's the city of Philadelphia. So brotherly love. But then the devoted part, it has the, also has the philos in there. So it, the devoted has a commitment to it that the same brotherness, you know, you're, uh, one of the things that we recognize in our society that's still not quite gone is that somebody that's in your family, you kind of owe them a little bit more yeah, right. than you do a perfect stranger. And, and you know, we can, we can unpack all that in scriptures and, and John 3.16 and all that later. But the point is, is that you know that you kind of owe your kin a little something that you don't know. And so this devoted part is you're supposed to change that over when you're in the kingdom. Now all of your allegiance, now all of your loyalty is firstly to God and then his people. So this devoted language literally connotates that this is now your devotion. You know, look around. This, this is your real family. The family of God is your real family. 
And if, and if the enemy could use one thing to get in the way of that, what do you think he would use? He uses a lot of things to get in the way, but don't we all struggle with money? Don't we all let, How many families have been broken up by money? So this circles back to Hebrews 13.5. Let your way of life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, I will never forsake you. It means, it means get your priorities right. And so I really think like people, this is also an idiom in Hebrew of, of the love of money thing. Like you, you hear that uh, the root of all evil is what? The love of money a Hebrew would actually tell you it's just money. It's not the love of money, it's just plain money. And so, so there's, a, there's a constant struggle within theology of, of I don't want to get into this, but I'll, I'll give you a little snapshot of, of at some point, the world is lost. Remember when, when, when Satan goes to tempt Jesus and he says, I'll give you the whole world, and Jesus doesn't say, wait, the world is mine, Right? He basically says, yeah, the world is yours. It will eventually be reclaimed to me as everything else will be. But right now, he doesn't argue with that when he's in there. And so there's an argument of money. Is it God's money? Does it belong to God? Or does it belong to the world? Steve's favorite answer, yes. Yes. What do we do with that? Well, love of money here is this word. It's only... This version of it's only used once. Aphilargoris. Aphilargoris. The A means not. Did you catch philo in there? Second part is philo. The last part is argoris. That's where we get AG from. Gold. Any science people in here? Periodic table. AG means? Gold. Silver, actually. Close. And so, the love of that. And so, what this basically says is not a friend of silver. Not a friend of silver. So basically, what this is saying is if, is if your love, if you are a friend, now we think of friendship as very broad. Like, in fact, there's a lot of biblical things of saying we should be friends with our enemies, right? So we think of it as very broad, yet this verse is kind of putting it in, in being, saying, that actually money really shouldn't be tied much to God. Now, we heard a message earlier, and we call some of that believing in prosperity, that God wants to prosper you. And he does, but guess what? He doesn't actually need our money to prosper us. You guys hear this every week. You already know that. I'm preaching to the choir, and, and very well. But what's interesting in this is he looks at it as a tool that every tool in your bag might give honor and glory to the Lord. And you shouldn't look at your dollar bills as any different than any other tool. You know what another biblical word for tool is? Gift. You shouldn't look at your, your gift as any different than a different gift that you have. So this is the idea of brotherly love, is that it can be so powerful that it can completely divide or... If you've ever seen brothers that are completely devoted to each other, reunited, there's nothing that puts a smile on your face like that. I mean, we have four boys, and believe me, when they come together, my wife and I look at each other and smile, and there's nothing that gives us that 
sense of spiritual love is seeing those four boys come together, put their arms around each other and smile. And that's just a little snapshot of what God wants to, wants to see in us. That our hospitality might win everybody over. That, that the outside world is looking in at these Christians and going, boy, if I could only live like that. If I could only have that. My life is total disorder. Haven't talked to my brother in years. Look at the picture that they're painting over there. So if you're noticing here, this is kind of a collision of the philo. It's where are you going to have your philo? The, the sincere love of God says that your philo should be wholly devoted to one another and wholly devoted to the kingdom <clears throat> by focusing on, by being present, by valuing the people that are in front of you, and hopefully the people that are in front of you are either kingdom people or you're trying to turn them into kingdom people. So that means having devotion or love some other direction is literally on purpose the enemy trying to distract you, pull you away with the crowds. The second part of the verse 10 says, outdo yourselves in honoring one another. When's, when's the last time anybody in here can, can say, like if I did a test and say, okay, raise your hand if you, yesterday, if you outdid some, everybody around you in honoring the people around you. Like, I didn't know that was a competition. But this is one of those good competitions that we should all be in. I'm going to honor better than you. No way, man, I'm honoring better than you. All right, game on, let's do it. We, this, is, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what Jesus, the, citizen, the original citizen of the original kingdom, made it look like. In the next verse, he says, do not let your zeal subside. You should always be crazy. <laughs> Keep your spiritual fervor. You should always have a fever for God. Serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, persistent in prayer, Share with the saints who are in need, and look at this last statement. Practice hospitality. Practice. What does practice mean? Let me, let me, let me ask you a question. Have you had someone in the last seven days in your home and you have been purposefully hospitable to them. Have you invited someone from the outside? Have you had people or a person? You need, not your family, not you know the regulars, not the, have you on purpose opened your heart, opened your life, opened your home, to, home up to be hospitable to someone in the last seven days? Don't answer. This was daily. If you were in the kingdom community that they had in this time, this was daily. It's what your money as a tool or a gift was for. To practice hospitality. You know, you're only, you only excel at things you practice at. Yeah. Amen. Anybody that's ever been in organized sports, you know your coach used to beat this into your head. 
you're going you're gonna to play like you practice. You know what this means about hospitality? This is why some of us stink at it. This is why some of you don't have homes that people can be in. Because you don't think that your house is literally for the kingdom. This is one of the things that uh, was kind of thrust on Kay and I because of the situation that got us into the home that we live in now. We knew that the home that we were going into had to be God's place because it wasn't our place. We have never lived a moment in that home thinking that this is our house and, and we're, nope, we have known. It, and most of you in here, you know that. You're in our house. Some of you are in our house every week and sometimes every day. Zach used to, back in the day before he got married and all of his affection went to his wife and kids, he, it, was a, it was a normal Sunday after church at the funeral home. Zach just came over and just stayed there all day. I went to work. See ya. He's in there having fun with the kids and gay and doing what I'm like. He, it was so normal for him to be at our house. And, and it's not just Zach. There's lots of people in this room that that's the same way. But do, do we embrace that as something that's supposed to be normal in the kingdom? Doc Ryan talked about Abraham being the being the example of this. Let me let me give you some legendary hospitality about Abraham, and this is just in one chapter of the Bible. This is Genesis chapter 18. When he had visitors come, it said that Abraham ran and bowed down before these visitors and gave them food and gave them water. When's the last time you had strangers show up at your house, or even strangers in the beloved family, because there are some here. There's people in this room that have never talked to somebody else in this room legitimately. What if they showed up at your door? You know what the average person would do in America today? I can't believe this guy just showed up in my house. Who do they think? Just knocking on my door. Who do they think they are? Well, I kind of think they think they're family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, this just happened to us this week. Brian and Amy showed up, got a new, new little UTV thing, and they showed up, and they got Asher, and his hair's all plastered back because he's <laughs> riding in the... And they just... Showed up in front of the house, like, here we are. Hey, you want to come in? No, you want to ride around the ATV? No, I can't. Well, yeah, I will. <laughs> what, what would you do if someone just, if I just showed up at your door, unannounced, no text, you didn't have me on Find My Friends, if I just showed up at your door, what would you do? Besides freak out and maybe cuss me a little. You, who knows if you'd do Would you run outside? Pastor Steve, you're here? Or just Steve? Don't eat, not even Pastor, just Steve. Would you bow? So this is interesting because, <laughs> because our world says we don't have that brotherly love. Our world says that when you know somebody that well, you can let your guard down, right? Ah, just whatever. Come into my dirty house and whatever. But the biblical side of this is even if it's family or even if it's friends that come over all the time, they should still receive your best. That's practicing hospitality. Dr. Steve and I have this little competition going on to basically see who can honor each other more over and over. Some of you guys have picked up on that because 
because I want, my desire, one of my lifelong desires is to honor him more than he honors me in life. And, and the word that's used for that is, in, in practice hospitality on here, is dioku. And the, the word that it's, it describes is pursuing your hunt. Anybody hunt? Boy, my little boys could tell you all about this. Competitively pursuing the hunt. We have a calendar that is like perfect during hunting season of who gets to hunt, in what stand, at what time of the day, with who, with, the, with, what, with what gun, with what bow, who's practicing when. Don't come to the Benchamer household. You know all about this, Bob. Don't come in October and think that somebody's not going to be out hunting that day. And that's the viciousness that they pursue it with. And this is what it's talking about of the aggressiveness of practicing hospitality. In fact, this is when it's the same word that when it gets to the, uh, the blessed R's in Matthew, it said, blessed are those who have been persecuted. Well, we don't think of persecuted as hospitality, but it's it's that you're pursuant so much that it almost seems like persecution. Wow. <clears throat> when Abraham uh, did this in Genesis 18, it, is, it exemplifies what he's talking about, this aggressiveness. And remember, Abraham was kind of a cool dude. He, he was like the Israeli. He, he's number one Hebrew. He's number one guy of God. Why is he being all aggressive with his hospitality? You know, he should be like, whoa, you showed up at Abraham's house. I'm Father Abraham. Don't you know the song? Father Abraham. He pursued these guys. Now, hold on. Abraham, going back to prosperity, was probably the richest person in the entire world during his time. And I'm going to walk into Abraham's house, and guess what Abraham is going to do to me? He's basically going to say, sit here, and he's going to get down on his knees, and he's going to wash my feet. The Lord of the house is going to do this, and then guess what he's going to call me? I call Doc Ryan Lord. If you, if you know this this. Uh, delineation of scripture in Genesis 18, Abraham did all this stuff. He invited him in. He called these, these angels, these messengers. That's what angels is a messenger. He called these messengers Lord. Washed their feet. Hello. Washed, washed their feet. Gave them bread. Gave them, or gave them meal. Gave them water. These are complete strangers. He'd never met them. He's the richest guy in the world. Then he says, guess what? I'm your servant today. The richest guy in the world looks at him and says, let me be your servant today. Let me honor you with crazy pursuance today. And it wasn't just Abraham. This was Lot, too. If you remember the story in Lot, this, this always messed with me until I understood this dynamic of hospitality in the kingdom. 
You know, when the, when the angels showed up to Lot, Lot's in Sodom and Gomorrah, like the, the pit of hell, yep. like the pride month of all pride months. He's, he's in that place, and these two messengers from God show up, and the men of the city want to do terrible things. I'm not going there. And Lot goes out of his way to be hospitable to these messengers from God, so much so that Lot literally says, hey, I'll give you my, hey, guys of the city, I'll give you my virgin daughters. Just leave the visitors alone. And I've always struggled with this, like, dude, like, I've got daughters. Like, I'll, I'm not there. But we don't have this mentality of hospitality. He trusted God. Lot, I know you're thinking like Lot, he was a bad example, but the Bible said that Lot was righteous. So Lot had some good stuff going on. He had some bad stuff and he had some good stuff. Anybody in here got some bad stuff and some good stuff? Okay, well, Lot had some bad stuff and some good stuff. And one of the good things about Lot is that he was righteous. He actually did trust God to an extent and he was very hospitable. So hospitable, he was willing to trade his daughters for the visitors. How many times do we trade our family? Like, nah, -uh. there ain't no way I'm letting someone come into my house because this is for my family and this, and this over here is for... We're not trusting God with those things. Everything that you have should belong to God. And anytime he taps you, you should be able to give that up. If you, if you hold back anything because it's yours then it's not God's. A a amen. I know we struggle with some of these kind of things because it just sounds like there's no way. That's because we're looking at it from our culture and our society. If we look at this from God's culture and God's society, you do know he owns the whole world. You think you own that dirt? Well, America with their taxes and... <laughs> And God might disagree with you. Eh, it's actually my dirt. You, you think you own the dirt of your body? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, baby. It, it ain't yours. Everything we got is on loan momentarily from God. And so when he taps us to give of ourselves, to give of our hospitality, to give of our being present, our time when we're with someone, we don't get to do that thing. Well, I don't really feel like it right now. I don't want to give that. But this is not congruent with people who are actually of the kingdom of heaven. It's also interesting that throughout the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 8 is the one that comes to mind. It says, uh, be harmonious, be sympathetic, be kind-hearted and humble. Those are some of the words that God uses in Exodus 34 when he introduces himself of who am I? These are the words. And so it says, this is sort of a verse that says, be like God in that way. But some versions throw the word brotherly in here because the word for humble in here is philophrones. Did you guys catch the connection there? And so what First Peter does, and there's about six other verses in the New Testament, that in order to be completely showing of this philo hospitality love and we got this with Abraham you have to be totally humble before the Lord 
In Romans 16, it's another part of Romans, the very end of it, there's this really unique verse in there, verse 23, and it says, Gaius, this is Paul writing, Gaius who has hosted me and all the church. Gaius is the one that John wrote his three letters to as well. Gaius uh, must have been somebody who exemplified the things of God so much that we've got two of the main apostles referencing Gaius. And look, one of the things that was referenced about him, he hosted me and all the church. Yeah. He, it doesn't say, you know, he was super awesome at doing expository preaching. He had a, a degree in exegesis. He, you know, super scholarly dude or any of the, he hosted me and all the church. He hosted me and all the church. If you're picking up on, on the direction that we're tracking here, there, there's two takeaways that I want everyone to embrace or at least meditate on. Take it to the Lord. You know, maybe you find out like Steve's stupid. I don't, I'm not going to listen, but at least consider taking it to the Lord. The first thing is being present. The person in front of you is worth the value of your attention. And if that means you gotta turn off your device or throw it in a bonfire, <laughs> it's a small price to pay to value the human in front of you. Be like Jesus, value the human in front of you. If God of the universe can value the human in front of you, so can you. And then secondly, I would love to see us as a representative of the citizenry of heaven to embrace being more hospitable. And I'm not asking that you invite me and Kay over for dinner. If you, in fact, after a message like this, if you do invite us over, <laughs> it's probably not let your love be without, <laughs> it's probably not sincere love. You're just saying, oh, great, he preached on hospitality, better invite someone over. No. Understand that this is supposed to be part of our virtue, part of our character as people of God. And if you're not doing this, why? Why are you not doing this? Well, I don't like my house. It's kind of dirty. And, you know, maybe you should invite someone over for accountability. Wow, house is pretty dirty, ain't it? <laughs> Remember, this is beloved church. We call fat, fat, right? We call dirty houses, dirty houses. Does that mean that we devalue the person with the dirty house? No. You know, maybe that means like, hey, I'll help you clean. You make me dinner, I'll help you clean. Deal? Hospitality is something that I would love to see us do more of. Be together, have a bonfire. I got stuff in my garage right now. Leftover from family camp. I have no idea how it got to my house. There's leftover s'more stuff sitting in my garage right now. Who's going to come and eat it? <laughs> I believe in hospitality, Pastor. At your house. <laughs> yeah. My <laughs> Did he invite us all over? Titus 1, 7 and 9 says, As God's stewards, an overseer must be above reproach. So if you want to advance in the kingdom... If you, if you want the Lord to promote you, here's how you do it. Not being self-absorbed. Got a little book right here called Self-Centeredness, the Source of All Greed. 
Does anybody? The five people that read it are like, woohoo! I'm going to give this book to someone who is going to admit that they've been a little self-absorbed and they haven't been as hospitable as they should be, and they're going to work on the hypocrisy of their love by detesting that which is evil and loving that which is righteous. And the person that raises their hand after that, you can guarantee is either sincerely there or is getting there. So who's going to raise their hand? See? Nobody. Oh, Tom. Thanks, buddy. As God's steward and overseer must be above reproach, not self-absorbed. You all had a chance right there. Everybody could have threw their hand up and said, you know what, I got a little self-absorbed. Not self-absorbed, not quick-tempered. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent. Not greedy for money. Where'd that come from? I thought all these things were disconnected. Why you keep connecting money to stuff? We didn't do it. God did it. Instead, he must be, so it said all the things you shouldn't be, and now here's what you should be. The first thing on the list, hospitable. You should have folks in your house, at your table, talking stuff, doing life, playing Scrabble. It's interesting, too, that word for above reproach, both in Titus and 1 Timothy later, the, the word for it is what's called a household word. It meant above reproach even before those that knew you best, like living your life in your household for those to see it. And so it's, it's a really, really interesting word, but it goes back to basically that you're living transparently. One of the reasons why I love Steve is because we have an incredibly transparent relationship. And so... And I believe he has that with your church, too. And that's a beautiful thing. And so um, this is exactly what that's talking about, is to live transparently. And when something comes up, you don't push it to the back and don't tell anybody about it. You get help and you get healed immediately, like that text said earlier. And what is that going to allow you to do? It's going to allow you to live in complete atonement. That's the biblical word, to to live without regret, basically, before the Lord. And there's so many places that say, if you don't live that way, you're going to be held there until you get there. And so many people, perhaps that's the line that we can't get to of hospitality because there's something else going on that you're not healed from. I told you you weren't going to make it through this sermon without having a healing. You have to get there. You, you, you have to get to the place. And it doesn't matter. Today, we're celebrating our, our nation this week. And we all want to heal our nation. Amen. We all want to get that. And I, I said, you know, let's go home and just be devoted to prayer and, and action this week to healing our nation. But, like, it starts right here. And it starts with this idea of a household code of transparency that we've, we've got to be completely open between those and this is what it says is the people that that are going to lead your church the overseers the deacons things like that that's the number one qualification to be in a place to lead in your church 
is that you no longer have anything that needs atonement. That you live transparently, not only before the Lord, but before all of those that you're in service to as well. If you are not transparent, you cannot be accountable. Right. And if you are not accountable, then you have no counting, no value. I know that's, that's harsh on some folks because they might not be accountable. The only reason that would, that would bother you is if you're not there. But it, it's just true. We, we have a ton of folks that have no real legitimate value for themselves. That way, they have not made themselves accountable. If you have value, you want accounting. Nobody hires an accountant when they're bankrupt. You hire an accountant when you got money so that you do the right thing with it. So you only have accounting when you have the value that is required for it. You do not have value if you do not have accountability, and you do not have accountability if you do not have transparency. There's a biblical phrase that goes something like this. Are you in a place where you can entertain angels unaware? And that means more than just being hospitable. It means living a life of total transparency, giving everything that God has gifted you with back to the kingdom. So when the strangers, when the angelic messengers showed up to Abraham, did he treat them the same or even better, this is the story of Jesus, of the diplomat from Rome or the outcast girl that had no place and should have never been? Right, right. Do right. you entertain those transparently the same way? All right. Praise God. So I believe that you are going to be more purposeful about being present with one another. Great place for an amen. amen. And I believe that we as a, as a culture, as a family, are going to grow in our hospitableness to one another. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. So I am going to bless you. So if you please rise. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of his life-changing word. If you would like to learn more about Steve Castle Ministries and Beloved Church, you can go online to stevecastle.com or belovedchurchillinois.com. You can also contact us at 815-990-0367. Always remember that you are a part of the Beloved Family of God and Beloved Church is the place where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart to receive as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. I pray, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health, prospering your body. And all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved.